Hey everyone, David here. I want to tell you about my music podcast, On Rotation. It's engaging, interactive, and insightful. Music mm-hmm. entwines with everything. It's something that always rings true to me. So when I need something to kind of root me, I can always go back to music in a sense, you know? Yeah. Join me each episode as we rotate through a number of topics and hear why it's the podcast that's always on replay and never on repeat. Listen to On Rotation wherever you get your podcasts. Music is universal, whether you're gigging out every single day or you're just sitting in your room playing. I write music to make people feel something or to get people to feel more in tune with their emotions. And, you know, every time I play shows, it always reminds me of that because I just want to entertain. You know, as long as it's music, I want to do it all. I I want to be that one guy that can take you from the beginning of an idea to put the music out. Music is a collaborative thing. And I think the more people you have on it, just the better it's going to turn out, really. Hey everybody, what's up? What's happening? You're listening to On Rotation, the podcast that's always on replay and never on repeat. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is David. I'll be your host and lovely guide. James Montgomery has been performing kick-ass shows with his iconic band for more than 40 years, and he's not slowing down anytime soon. I got to talk with a Detroit-turned-New England native about everything he's accomplished and everything he has in the works. Well, James Montgomery, thank you so much for joining me today. From reading about you before our chat, I don't know if you want to give away your age or anything like that, but you've been doing this for 40 years. So if you want to lie and say you've been doing this since you were like born and say you're 40, well, you can, I, but up I, to you. I actually, uh, have, I, I, I'm 23 now, so let me let me subtract here. No, actually, the James Montgomery band is, is over 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And I had a band in uh, college, and I had a band in high school, too. So the high school band opened up for Iggy Pop and uh, the MC5. And um, he was Iggy and the Stooges back then. And then my college band was so successful that when I graduated from college, uh, almost immediately, I got a six-figure deal from Capricorn Records, the Allman Brothers record label. Mm-hmm. And so I went right from college to uh, touring with the Allman Brothers, Marshall Tucker, Leonard Skinner, and, you know, signed a pretty healthy six-figure contract. It didn't begin with the number one. So, yes, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. But that sounds like a lot. Like, it's have you ever really had a break? Because it sounds like it's just been nonstop, like since day one almost. Well, yeah, but when you, you know, when you consider that what I do for a living is sing and play music. Uh, I think nonstop is basically what we're looking for, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we don't want to stop, you know. It's uh, the most, um, in in some respects, the most gratifying and fun thing that I do is get on stage and make music with uh, fellow musicians and relate to an audience. And um, so, as far as we're concerned, uh, six nights a week would not be too many. So. You know, yeah. and matter of fact, I was looking through um, this guy's thinking about doing some kind of a documentary on me. And um, so I was looking, to, they wanted me to go through, all, like I have these, you know, plastic tubs full of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I came across some touring schedules from the days we were on the road with the Allman Brothers or Steve Miller or Bruce Springsteen or Aerosmith, whatever. And if there were 30 days in a month, we would work probably 26 of them. And that was, you know, month in and month out. 
you know, which uh, once you're out there, you know, you want to stay out there. And then if you take time off, then you want time off. But once you're touring, you know, you get into the groove, you know. Right. Yeah. That's your philosophy. It sounds like just keep going, keep plugging away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Boston seemed to be a launching pad for you, because what I understand is you went to Boston University and that's where the band kind of started. But your roots were in Detroit, which is obviously so well known for blues and rock and all of that. So what kind of inclined you to make that jump and go to the East Coast? Growing up in Detroit, uh, you know, I when I, I ran away from home when I was 17 with a 15 year old girl. That's how desperately I wanted to get out of Detroit. <laughs> but um, my brother went to San Francisco. John Lee Hook and I grew up in Detroit. He went to San Francisco. I went to Boston. That's as far east or west as you can go without swimming. <laughs> um, but I, I but I, I really love Detroit. Um, you know, they introduced me every night from Detroit, Michigan, and and I'm proud to be from there. It's a fantastic, fantastic music um, town. And Detroit musicians, we kind of have this thing where we kind of stick together, you know. Um, it, you know, for instance, uh, I recorded with Kid Rock and Uncle Cracker. And I was recommended for the job by Steven Tyler. And then um, when Bob Ritchie, Kid Rock's real name, when Bob found out that I was from Detroit, then he put me on the on the gig right away. Um, so we Detroit guys and girls, we really um, we really think there's something special about the music that comes out of that town. Uh, meanwhile, I wanted to get away from my mom and dad as quickly as possible, and I knew I knew a lot about the Boston music scene because I could get WBZ there. You know, at night in those days, these stations could broadcast with like you know hundreds of thousands of watts and stuff. So I was able to get blues shows out of um, out of Nashville, the John R. Show. And I was able to get rock shows out of Boston. And the jug band that I was in in high school, a couple of those guys summered in Martha's Vineyard. So I knew a lot about the Boston music scene. And I was just, you know, I, I did everything I could to get accepted into a Boston college. And when I got accepted into BU, I was going, this is great. Now I'm going to be in the town. I, I really wanted to be in Boston specifically. Yeah, and you, like you mentioned, as soon as you finished, you had a deal lined up for you. So it sounds like you went straight into performing, but were you recording right away as well, or was it strictly just gigs? Well, when you know, when we signed with the label, you know that 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 meant recording was imminent. Mm. Uh, we played for about a year. We we built up uh, a huge following while I was in college, and when I graduated college, we were probably the most popular band on the college circuit even there was even a couple of times an aerosmith opened for us but i always loved those guys um so we had a great time working together way back then so you know the reason we got signed with capricorn in those days you didn't necessarily have to have a hit record you just had to draw thousands of people every night and have them go crazy and that's what we were doing we were seeing three three to five thousand people a night and they were going crazy <laughs> and Capricorn said, "Yeah, let's. Um, why don't you go crazy on? Let people go crazy on our label." And you know, touring the Almer Brothers was just, um, you know, they, they they were them and Aerosmith were my favorite bands to tour with. I mean, I think Aerosmith because I knew the guys really well. Mm. But um, and you know, and they're a great band. But I, you know, the Almer Brothers, 
were so friendly. They were so nice. And they would, you know, Greg would let me come into his dressing room and, you know, share food and everything with him. You know, there was no attitude at all. They were just a great band of tours. So I was lucky to come out of college and hit the road with the Alma Brothers, you know. Right, because it sounds like a lot of artists don't really get that experience, especially back then. You know, it sounds like it's pretty competitive from what you're saying, especially in Boston. Well, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of a lot of bands, but there, you know, but there was a a lot of people and a lot of music to go around. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't really, I mean, some of the English bands are getting competitive. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, they like pull the plug at it. You know, before you had a chance to do an encore, they pull the plug or something like that. And uh, there was a well-known manager uh, who ended up managing. Edgar Winter and Johnny Winter, and he would do the same thing. Uh, but, you know, generally the music community has always been just, uh, uh, you know, people that I, I think the fact that we share our music every night it, it makes it so that musicians really uh, are very open uh, to sharing everything. You know, that's why when there's all these tragedies, uh, musicians are sometimes the first ones to come out and volunteer to help people out because that's what we do for a living we exchange energy with people you know right yeah that just reminded me you put out like a vaccination song not that long ago during covid that just kind of reminded me of your point that you're saying is you know touching on those big life things that people probably should be aware of like was that what the mindset was when you released that track yeah you know i i thought vaccination was a good idea you know i um, I, 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 my brother was, didn't want to get a, a vaccine. And I asked him, John, when was the last time you heard of anyone dying of smallpox? He said, well, not really. And I said, how many of our close friends have died of polio? And he said, well, none that I can think of. And I said, you think that might've been because of a vaccine? I, you know, I just, um, and I, and I know this is a whole different thing and, and I, and I don't want to get into the vac- vaccinated thing anymore because, um, right. I got, I had a lot of people who were really upset that I put the song out, but, you know, I I really do believe that it cut down drastically on the number of deaths and the people that had really serious COVID and people that had long-term COVID. I I think science pretty much will support that, but, but, and I don't care if people get vaccinated or not, you know, I'm not, you know, I think it's a personal decision. But I had, I had actually, when I played that song, I, I, I had people walk out, you know, fans get up and walk out, you know, and I'm going, Hey, come on, lighten up. It's, it's, it's only a song, you know, it's just right. a song. That's all it is. You know? Yeah. I guess I guess we have a great time putting it together. And for those of you watching this, you can go on my YouTube channel and, and, and see the whole thing there, the long version and the short version. And the more hits I get on that, the happier I'm going to be. So, <laughs> yeah, go to my vaccinated, uh, go to my YouTube site and hit on vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And I mean, I feel like you haven't really made it unless you've maybe ruffled a few feathers with your fans here and there. So one can say you. Yeah, exactly. It. <laughs> it, it, yeah, you have to get some portion of the population pissed off at you. And then the other thing is you haven't really made it until you've um, gone through litigation with the manager. You know, that's a prerequisite for calling yourself a, a rock star is that you have to go through litigation. If you, if, if you haven't been through litigation, excuse me, you don't qualify. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any memorable like stories along those lines, like either just playing some gigs or with managers specifically? 
Well, you know, the one guy embezzled a couple hundred thousand dollars for me, and that's why I ended up in. It, it took my. I, I finally got a forensic accountant, and it took him like three months to figure out what the guy was doing. Jesus. But anyway, um, but you know, artists and athletes sometimes, uh, when they're managed by somebody unscrupulous, it's it's not uncommon. I, I mean, Billy Joel and Tom Petty got it worse than I did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, you just move on, and uh, you know, there's other other people out there, and um, you know, fortunately for me, I've always had a great fan base, and to this day, you know, we're still doing really good numbers, you know. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, you guys just put out a record, from what I understand, a tribute to Paul Butterfield. What can you tell me about that album? Well, you know, Paul Butterfield was always one of my biggest influences. I, I think my two biggest influences on my live show are definitely Paul Butterfield and James Cotton. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a documentary about Paul Butterfield, Horn from the Heart, with Bonnie Raitt and then Maria Maldon and Jeff Maldon and a bunch of people, David Sanborn. And I just produced a documentary about James Cotton uh, that was one of five finalists in the Library of Congress Ken Burns Prize for film, wow. which is about as, as big a film you can get in the documentary without getting an Oscar. Yeah. So those guys are my big influences uh, in terms of how I approach music as a performing artist. So this label out in California uh, approached this guy uh, who was Johnny Winter's manager. And I was in the Johnny Winter band for six years. And so, and, and, and said, you think he would be willing to do an album uh, for Paul Butterfield? And I said, I, you know, my bass player, David Hall, who's out now with the Joe, Joe Perry project, mm-hmm. you know, we'd been, we'd been wanting to make an album for Paul Butterfield for like years. And so when this label said, Hey, we'll give you money to make one. <laughs> we said, yeah. So we, we, we rearranged a lot of the stuff. Paul was like a, a, a huge innovator and um, a, a guy who loved to experiment. So we're hoping that Paul, we're hoping it didn't turn over in your grave on this one, but so we rearranged a bunch of stuff and um, and uh, you know, he had original stuff on his record and and he didn't sing all the songs on his record. So we just modeled everything after after Paul Butterfield. And he always usually had an instrumental on his first couple of records. So the amazing Grace Kelly, the uh, unbelievable saxophonist who's who Winton Marsalis calls the future of jazz. Uh, she and I wrote a song with, with my guitar player, so we had that instrumental on there. We have Jimmy Bavino on there, who was uh, the music director of Conan O'Brien Band. And of course, he's played with everybody. And we had Paul Nelson on there from the Johnny Winter Band. And the Uptown Horns, who were the Rolling Stones horn, touring horn section. And they're also the horn section on James Brown's Living in America. I think the only white people ever recorded with James Brown, you know, he came in the studio and looked at the horns and said, who are those guys? He said, well, they're the guys that did the horn charts that you like so much. James Brown looks at Maceo, he looks at the Uptown's horns, looks at Maceo, looks at it, he says, I guess my music touches all kinds of people. He couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't believe the white people, he couldn't believe the white people could, could love his music and learn how to play it. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just even now, just listening to you list off all of these artists and musicians that you've worked with like how do you even maintain these relationships with all these people especially 
with a career as long as yours and everything that you ventured into, how do you, you know, kind of work on maintaining those relationships with people that you just like working with? Well, we do the best we can. Um, out here in New England, there's a lot of New England based musicians mm. um, that, that we play together all the time. The Uptown Horns, Christine Ullman from Saturday Night Live, John Cafferty, John Butcher, Barry Goudreau, former guitar player from Boston. And the list goes on and on. And Johnny A. And we New England people get together as often as we can for like a, usually a, like what we call a super band for charity. Mm. We do about five or six of those a year. Otherwise, you know, it's just really a question of trying to just stay in touch with, with people. I mean, over the years, you know, um, I, I did a movie with Morgan Freeman. I stayed in touch with him for a while and um, met met um, Arthur Miller, the great playwright, and uh, tried to stay in touch with him. But, you know, I still stay in touch with Huey Lewis and uh, Jim Belushi and uh, the Blues Brothers. So, you know, and the guys from Aerosmith, uh, we stay in touch. So, you know, you try and stay in touch with as many people as you can. Um, because here again, we all cut from the same cloth, you know. Um, we love to share music and uh, love to share our, our lives, actually. Yeah, and essentially that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Like you're coming together to share what you love and what you've been doing for so long. It is, and and what happens on a good night uh, on nights when things are going great and the band's really playing and, and you're playing solos and you don't know where they're coming from. Uh, those are the nights that the music plays you. Um, mm. You kind of lose, and that's the beauty of it, is that you lose your limited egoic self and then you tap into what, what they would call your source energy or chi or soul, mm. whatever you want to call it. Uh, call it what you want. I call it messing with a kid, but... Um, so yeah, so so you're actually able to tap into that energy, and um, and like I say, it plays you eventually. I I had a harmonica solo that I did, which I think to this day is one of the best solos I've ever played. Mm -hmm. I can't play it anymore because I have it on a cassette, and I don't know how to play a cassette anymore. They don't. You gotta go to a third hand show in Hoboken to find a cassette machine. Right. <laughs> but but um, but I I. I back that cassette up back and forth probably 50 times trying to figure out how to play the solo that i played that was taped there and i could never figure out how i played it so that so that's why i know that when when things are really smoking uh all of a sudden this kind of the creative principle of the universe takes over and uh and there and you just kind of tap into that and go Right. Yeah. Do you have any in the New England area specifically? Are there any venues or any gigs or shows that really stand out to you, like places you like to perform? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's such a it's such a, you know, people sometimes ask, well, do you like playing in the smaller places or the bigger places? It just depends on that particular night and your relationship to that particular audience. Mm hmm. One of the first shows I did with the Allman Brothers, we, we were seeing, I think there were 175,000 people. And when you're on stage looking at 175,000 people, that's all you can see. You can't see anything except people. No matter, you know, you look all this way, and you look all that way, and you look all that way, and the only thing you see is people. Now, that crowd went crazy. 
175 people, even though the Almer brothers were flying in in helicopters over us, and the audience knew they were there, we still got two encores. Right. And, you know, they, they, you know, they were having a great time. And then, and then you'll play some nightclub somewhere, and then, um, you know, and it, you know, some weirdo corner of the world, and you can't get a hundred people to give you the kind of energy back to that you're looking for, but. Which is extremely rare, by the way. I don't, that, you know, I don't want people to think that. I mean, every time we play, we we go over big, but so it's not so much the venue as as um, as the audience, but it, but there are great venues in New England um, uh, where I spend most of my time, and now all over the country, you know, listening rooms, you know, in New England, Tupelo Music Hall, or the the Kate Theater. Uh, Jonathan's up in Maine. Um, I'm actually playing a, a place called Hobbs on um, Friday the uh, 24th, which is a great, great venue. I can't wait to play there. The Emelin Theater in Mamaroneck, um, New York. I'm, I'm there at the end of the month. That's another great place. The Bull Run in Shirley on the uh, 1st of, of April. You know, they're, they're, all the rooms we play now, we don't really play any nightclubs anymore. We either, either play like concerts or big listening rooms or in the case of Bull Run, kind of a dinner theater type place. Mm -hmm. And um, But they're scattered all, all throughout New England, Flying Monkey, and just really, really great rooms, you know. And the, and Emelin, Mamaroneck, New York. Anyway. Yeah, I was going to say you touched upon a few of the shows that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, especially in Massachusetts, like you said, Shirley, uh, you got some in, you got one in Marblehead, Dalton, Newton, Arlington, Amherst a little bit later, you know, and like you said, throughout New England, you're going to do some stops. What can people expect from these shows that you have coming up? Is it going to be a lot of stuff off the new record? Is it going to be like, you know, a kind of tribute to things you've done in the past or a little bit of everything? Well, yeah, it is a little bit of everything, but, uh, you know, my, as I kind of alluded to earlier, talking about James Cotton and Paul Butterfield, you know, my band has always been a very high energy band and, and I'm in my seventies now, but, but my energy on stage is the same as it's always been the same with the guys in the band. We like, uh, we come to kick ass and take no prisoners and that's what we do. And <laughs> My bass player, David Hall, was with the Buddy Miles band when he was 17. He's always at the Joe Perry project. He's going out with Joe Perry again this month in April. And then uh, he actually did four shows as a substitute bass player for Aerosmith mm -hmm. as their bass player. My guitar player um, did a brief tour with the Blues Brothers. But of course, I've been a Blues brother since, since Danny turned 30. So I've you know I've been a member of the touring Blues Brothers on several occasions, mm -hmm. and then uh, my drummer was five years with the Jay Giles band. So, you know these are all high energy bands. You know, no wimps allowed. <laughs> and then if I, if I bring a horn player, I'll bring in um, uh, Andrew Clark from the Beach Boys or Derek Dyer uh, from from Tina Turner. So everybody, every position on stage is filled by a major, a major performer. Right. And it sounds like, you know, you're going to come to your show and it's going to be nothing less than high energy and spectacular. Yeah. But to really make a high energy show, you have to have times when you come, when, when the dynamic is, 
is way low too. Otherwise, it's just um, you know you you lose that energy if it's just full tilt all the time. Except for my good friends, the Ramones, who were very effective at that. Uh, every single Ramones record release party in Boston happened in my apartment, by the way. <laughs> but um, and I love them, but they're the only guys I know who can just play every song full tilt, you know, mm-hmm. um, or new, I should say, because uh, only Marky's left. But um, yeah, so it'll be high energy. We'll be playing uh, some songs dedicated to Paul Butterfield. We usually start the set with that. And then we mix mix in some originals and we've got uh, old favorites, you know, the, the songs like the train song, which was a number one song played on WBCN for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, we, we get requests for older songs, uh, schooling them dice. So we'll, we'll be playing some of that stuff too. Right. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, you've built up a nice fan base over these years. So I'm sure they're just as excited to hear it as you are to play it. Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, some of my absolute very best friends in life are people that I know just because they started out being in the audience so often. Mm. And that's another great thing about what we do for a living is that, you know, you have this ever widening family, you know, and your family grows every year. And some of my very closest personal friends are people that I know just because, uh, you know, Ron and Sandy, if you're listening, uh, you know, just because, <laughs> just because they come to see us so often. And, you know, and now we're, they come to my house and visit, I go to their house and visit, you know, it's, it's, um, we've always had tremendous respect for our uh, fans. Um, I'm always puzzled when, when people like, you know, won't sign an autograph or, or do that kind of thing, you know, although under it's always circumstantial, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, sometimes something's happening where that won't happen, but, but we, um, we have great respect and admiration for our fans. We really do. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Well, one of the final questions I want to ask you, James, is, you know, looking back at everything you've done and everything that you've put out in your career at this point, what do you, what would you say that blues means to you specifically? or just music and rock in general, what do you think you've learned from everything about yourself through your career? Well, I, I had a radio show for about five, five and a half years uh, until I joined Johnny Winter's band and then I couldn't maintain it. Um, so I interviewed uh, probably a hundred blues musicians. And, uh, my manager said, you should get a radio show. And the very next day I'm walking down the street and this guy says, hey, we had a meeting, we want you to do a radio show. So I think I called up Bonnie Raitt and I called up um, John Lee Hooker and James Cotton and Greg Allman. And I asked them if I had a show, would you come on? And they all said, yes. So the next day I said, yeah, I'll do a show. Because my show was, it it wasn't spinning records so much. It was, each show was dedicated to a musician Mm -hmm. and then their influences. So the reason I bring this up is because almost every single musician of, of the hundred we all had a moment when we heard blues and it struck this really deep chord where you just said, wow, listen to that. That's what I want to do. I I don't know if that happens with rock and roll people. I think maybe they want to play guitar. Maybe they want to be in a band. I don't know if they have this moment that's just like this really visceral, deep-seated moment. Bonnie Raitt had it at, the, at, a, at a campfire when the counselor started playing it 
Tom Rush version of, of a Bo Diddley song. So, so we all have that moment, you know, that moment where it's clear that you, you just really want to play that music. Uh, blues is blues is like that. And um, so the idea is to keep getting back to that place, you know, and then you blues music is tailor-made for people who are um, going through hard times or, you know, to get, to get to that place where, where, where you go, wow, I, that, I really love that. And, it's cathartic. It's a, it's the Aristotelian cathartic principle. Uh, when Aristotle and Plato had the argumentative differences about the nature of the universe, but anyway, um, so you know, blues is a very cathartic um, form of music that that aims to really um, uh, unite, you know, unite your feeling with someone else's. And um, and it's cyclical, you know. It goes through periods of where it's more popular than others, but it, but it'll always be here. There'll always be uh, young people coming to blues and older people sticking with it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much, James. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for coming on. Before I let you go, we wrap this up. Why don't you let people know where they can keep up with you or get info about your upcoming shows and things like that? Yeah, we've got. Um, I'm up in Ossipee, New Hampshire, uh, Friday the 24th with an all-star band at this place called Hobbs Brewery, which is really one of the most fun places you can go to. It's a, a lot of dancing, um, big place, um, really great brew house and food. And then um, then I'm, I'm going to be at, in, uh, at the Emelin Theater in Mamaroneck, um, New York on the uh, 31st, uh, my first time in there. And it used to be an area where we had a, a huge fan base. So I'm, I'm hoping a lot of my, my old fans come out for that one. And then on the first, um, we're in Shirley, Massachusetts at the Bull Run, which is a great, and, and I heard that one's almost sold out. So you better buy tickets fast. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they have really good food. You, say, you sit down, have a nice dinner, watch the band. And, and that place you know the the audience is right in front of you at that place so it's like really intimate and and it, you know it's the kind of audience that if you play a solo a great solo they let you know so there's a lot of interaction at that place and you know and then i'll be out in amherst at um at a place called the drake which is right in amherst i'll be in dalton mass um at a place called the knitting the knitting factory i think it is or something like that stationary factory mm -hmm. And then, you know, so, and then my website, uh, it took me years to come up with this, but my website is jamesmontgomery.com. Why is my head so flat? I just don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, so they can get on the site and see all the dates and, and um, people should know that they're going to see um, an energetic uh, uh, show played by some of the best musicians on the planet. Everybody I have in my band has played with some of the biggest bands in, in the country. Mm -hmm. So yeah, people should get those tickets fast. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, James, for coming on again. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Uh, you know, we blues magicians need all the help we can get, and we appreciate getting some help from you today. <laughs> <laughs>
So there are very few times I feel that we get an artist or an artist is so open and so articulate about what their album or their music is about. And then enter Melanie Martinez, who basically like has her whole album portals just kind of outlined for us and her fans and her listeners and everyone on the planet. And I mean, she's kind of done this before. Like she's always been very open and articulate, like I said, about the intention behind the, her art. And it's always kind of specific. And Portals is just another example of that. So we're going to talk about Portals, which is Melanie Martinez's third studio album. It's actually a continuation of her past two albums, Cry, Burying, Cry Baby, sorry, and K-12. through And Andrew, like, I, I don't know. Like, I think the way this album comes off for Melanie is like, like I said, it's a progression of her past two albums, but she really has matured in a way too with her sound and with her concepts. Like, would you agree? Yeah, I think 100%. Even just like, like you mentioned, the material, I think it's always been very mature, but it's been kind of hidden behind more like child nursery rhymes or more childlike subject matter, um, which I think is really interesting that she's done. But I think with this one, she did a really good job at integrating something that her first relationship in the public eye obviously mm. did. And I think that being able to kind of write about that has been really therapeutic probably for her. And we see a lot of a lot of that actually come out into this album. Mm-hmm. It was good. Yeah, I was going to say, you're talking about her relationship with Oliver Tree, obviously. And that was, I, that's got to be at least a couple of years ago now, right? Yeah, I want to say it was probably around 28 between 2018 and 2020, somewhere in there. I'm not sure if it was the full time span, but mm-hmm. yeah, so kind of after like K through 12 or like on the tail end of K through 12, I would say. Well, K through 12, I think was 2019, so maybe even before that. But no, you're right. Like she does have a lot of that is one part of the material on portals that she does address. But like the basic overarching concept of the album is talking about this in between where people kind of move on between life and the afterlife, she says, and Mm -hmm. kind of this hypnosis that people fall under, like hypnotherapy, like I said, and she was reading like so many books and so many manuscripts, I think, from what people described as as they're going through this process of like, you know, transitioning. And I mean, I just can't get over like this character, like. We said it's crybaby, but crybaby in like the universe or like an afterlife with all the eyes or whatever. Like it's just so wild and it's so visionary. Yeah, it's kind of like um, I just I think in general, the rebirth, I guess, of crybaby. But I think it's really interesting how her physical form changed, kind of similar to like a caterpillar and a butterfly. So I I really I like it and I think it's really creative and not something that I've seen before from another artist so it's something that I can really appreciate I know some people have been really kind of creeped out I think by uh, Melanie Martinez's new appearance but overall yeah I think the highlighting that it's basically about like the rebirth of crybaby I think is the overarching theme of the album exactly yeah and I mean so you went to one of her listening parties and that was before portals came out so just talk a little bit about like what that experience is, was like, because she obviously dresses up in the costume now. So it's just like you said, she's really fulfilling this whole role from, you know, front to back, you could say. Yeah, um, I didn't go to a listening party that she attended or anything. Um, OK, 
unfortunately. <laughs> but I know she is currently attending some listening parties right now, but I know she um, has fallen under the weather, so I don't think she's made it to all of her appearances. Mm-hmm. But just in general, the listening party was really cool. It's an opportunity to I not only listen to the album, but kind of meet other people, see other people that also have the similar interests as you. And there were opportunities for like giveaways and like free posters and stuff. So it was overall a really cool experience. Mm-hmm. And what would you say the general consensus has been about the album? Like, do you think her fans are really into it? Like you said, some people have been kind of critical or like freaked out with what she's done. But I think as a fan, I would assume you'd be a little bit more appreciative of what she's done and how transparent she's been with her art. Right. I think a lot of people that have been there, even early on as like Dollhouse EP or Crybaby itself, probably really appreciate it and can understand where Melanie's coming from. I think uh, most recently, one of her songs blew up on TikTok. And I think that had her, you know, gain a larger following than what she had before. And I feel like it's a lot of those people that don't necessarily appreciate or understand kind of what Melanie Martinez is going for. (laughs) Yeah. But overall, I think everyone's really received the album very well. I know she has plans actually to release a deluxe edition. She's releasing another single tonight, April 4th. She has another single coming out called The Milk of the Sirens or Milk of Sirens. Okay. Which has been, which is like a fan favorite, and a lot of people are really excited for it. I know I'm excited for it, but um, yeah, I think overall the consensus of how people have received it have been pretty good. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, like I was definitely a little freaked out at first to seeing the new image that she was doing. I'm not gonna lie, but I've just like conditioned myself, and now I'm okay with it. Like watch the music video for Death, like just stalk her Instagram, look at all the photos, so I get used to it. But it does like it does really say it's a strong testament to who she is as an artist. Like, I don't think there really is anyone that does what she does also in the way that she does. Like, she's just so like visionary, like I said, like there is no other Melanie Martinez. It's wild. Yeah, exactly. And I really I personally I appreciate her dedication to wearing the costume. She said before, I think it takes like three to four hours just to like on. but you know, release day, she went dressed up like that to Target. She's been doing a lot of like meet and greets in some some locations. So it's it's just impressive that she's been able to to do that every like she's changing like every day into this yeah. three, four hour personality, basically. Yeah, she's committed for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the songs on portals because i mean i wrote down like a list of favorites and i honestly have a lot more than i realized and one of my favorites is void which is the second track and was the second single Mm -hmm. um and i was reading and like i said she's been very open about the album and kind of the intention behind the songs and the project itself and she was saying you know she had this room in the house she used to live in called the portal room which inspired the title And it had a lot of activity from the other side. And she would kind of write a lot of the songs in there. And I think Void was one of the first ones she wrote. Well, it was the first. She said this was the first track that she ever produced fully on herself, which I think is really cool. And she talked about like the words and the meaning behind that song being so powerful that she was like crying while screaming the chorus. And I just love the line where she goes like a priest behind 
confession walls I judge myself kneeling on a metal grater I've had that like stuck in my head ever since and I just think it's a phenomenally written and produced song yeah actually that one is probably right up there if not my favorite it's Mm -hmm. I really like this song because she really talks about um it's an opportunity to like the void is supposed to be a place where there's like no outside commentary you're you're stuck with yourself so to speak stuck and the whole point of being trapped in the void is that you have to come to terms with you yourself you know basically changing your internal monologue and kind of getting more comfortable with yourself as opposed to seeking outside validation or you know judgment from others it's kind of like being true to who you are as a person and i really I really appreciate that. And I really like, I don't know. I really liked that song. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it made sense for her to put it, I think, as a single too. like I said, given the production factor and mm-hmm. it's very clean. It's very easy to interpret. I think like a lot of these songs are very intricate and they have a lot of different meanings. So I think that one is pretty straightforward. Like you said, I also think you know, like speaking of ones that kind of have like a deeper dual meaning, she mentioned um, Spiderweb has kind of like a dual meaning. She said it's a good example of like conceptual and thematic writing. Like it's a commentary, I think also kind of being stuck in that in between, like that void where you're mm-hmm. moving on, you're kind of working out those judgments. But it also, she said, was referring to social media and kind of the hold it has on us as a population. So I think that's also a really phenomenal song to highlight on there. Yeah. Another one too. I'm not sure if you knew this, but uh, the song Moon Cycle. I don't know if this, I mean, you can never definitely say, but I mean, you can pretty sure without a doubt say uh, Oliver Tree had a song that was very similar. And this kind of felt like it was like a callback to that song. That makes sense. So I think in the song, I honestly don't really know too much by him. But in the song, he said something about like the pyramids and her being on her period or something. And in this song, Melanie says, like, I could win a fight on my period. I could build the pyramids or something like that. And I just think that that was a pretty, pretty obvious uh, call out right there that I can appreciate. So, yeah, she's digging. She's digging for sure. Well, I mean, I thought you were going to talk about evil for a second, because I think evil also kind of does that too, right? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like I recall her mentioning that she ended things like things ended on good terms between her and Oliver, mm-hmm. because I think he received a lot of hate. But at the same time, you know, if you look at other similar artists in the same situation, like Miley Cyrus and Liam Hemsworth, like Liam Hemsworth is suing Miley Cyrus currently because... Mm-hmm of the success of flowers which is ridiculous so it could be like kind of in that sense she's trying to address it but regardless like evil's really good at demonstrating like how she feels about this person another really good one i think that one's probably the fan favorite on the album yeah i could see that that one too like kind of speaking on her sound as well like we've mentioned she's kind of you know become known for having this very childish like sound with like you know xylophones music boxes like drums whatever it is and it seems like on this like she takes it to another level of that maturity where you know it's still it's like really hard to describe like she doesn't really fit into any genre per se because she kind of 
made her own in that sense. Mm-hmm. But now, like, she kind of has this, you know, indie pop, like, alternative pop, I guess you could say, like, vibe that still bears resemblance to what she came up on. Like, I think Fairy Soiree is another one that kind of does that. Right. Um, with, like, the harps and things of that sort. But then you have, like we said, we have, like, Evil or, like, you know, even the Battle of the Larynx is, like, a little bit more rock-infused. Like, that's another that one. one. Oh, did you, yeah, I was going to say, like, I like that one, too. What do you like about it? I mean, honestly, even just when she says, like, don't you battle with my larynx tonight, I think is, like, it's just such a, like, a different way of saying, like, don't get in a screaming match with me because I'm going to win. Like, just don't fight with me over this. Like, don't take it too far because I'll push it further. And I just think it's a really unique way of saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's always good at, like, finding other ways to describe things like you said like anyone else could have written that song and just talked about like getting into a screaming match but no she takes it to don't battle with my larynx like it's just it's just so it's just so creative and then I like how that song really bleeds into the contortionist right afterwards which is kind Mm -hmm. of like it's almost like an act two to battle of the larynx because it's talking about how somebody you know literally was bending over backwards and obviously Melanie takes it to the point where she gets very descriptive and talking about your your bones breaking, your body bleeding, things like that. And also like that song from a production standpoint is amazing. Like she's like screaming, she's laughing, her voice is distorted. Like honestly, like I don't I don't know what the strongest song on this album is cuz they're all pretty up there, but mm-hmm. I could argue like that one is is pretty good like that one might be the best one on the album at least from my point of view and saying it out loud like just now (laughs) yeah i mean i would even say too like the way she released the singles like starting with death Mm -hmm. and i feel like that did it that was a really good transition period from k through 12 and after school to like more of this like rebirth era i think that she's trying to portray so i think even the release of how she did the singles for the album like she did a great job and this is a really quick turnaround because I think the first single came out like the first weekend of March which is yeah crazy and then Void came out just a couple days before the album one -hmm. thing too and I'm not trying to rush her or anything but I'm really excited to see what she does next Mm -hmm. obviously I'm super satisfied what she's given us so far and I'm I appreciate it and I'm hoping that this era lasts a lot longer but I'm just interested because since she originated she originally started on The Voice and from there she released Dollhouse, Dollhouse EP, Crybaby, K-12 through and now Portals and this whole time we've always been with Crybaby mm-hmm. essentially so yeah. I'm really interested to see what the next type of era is going to be if it's going to be like kind of a different character character or if it's going to be just Melanie Martinez I know she said at the K through 12 movie premiere I believe she said she already had the next two albums and two movies planned out Hmm. so I know Portals is definitely going to get a movie which I'm really excited for I just and you can hear it too because obviously as you said all the transitions Mm -hmm. they're they're extended obviously at the end to the point there's got to be like a movie release with it um yeah. but it probably won't come until next year or like the fall or winter right and i mean that just like fits so well into her brand like i remember watching k-12 through 
And she talked a lot about like, you know, it was her first directing gig, I think, or like first time doing a full movie. Mm -hmm. And she's just so good at it. Like all of her videos too. Like if you watch all of the videos from Crybaby, like front to back, like they all have a story, you know, she's just so good at like creating that visual storyline that it only feels natural for her to have another movie with portals. Right. And I think even like from a storytelling perspective, like K through 12 was perfect because it really did have like a beginning, a middle and end, like you really follow it. And even on Crybaby itself, like, I'm not going to say it was very similar to K through 12 in that sense, but it still had like a pretty clear story throughout it. And Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I think she just all around is a really good storyteller. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, which of the three do you think you can make the argument is her strongest in the Cryberry in the Cryberry tri- trilogy? I'm having a hard time saying that for some reason. <laughs> um, that is really that's a tough question. Um, because I'm gonna be honest, I don't think I appreciated all the snippets from K through twelve when she released them, but I. I've followed her, so I was so so excited when Crybaby originally came out that I think I'm gonna have to give it to the original Crybaby album because I just thought it really felt like it changed a couple things around. I think just in general, like in music, I don't know. It just it was there was nothing like it. Like no alternative pop girls were doing it like her. Like I guess you could argue Marina, but I really like the cohesiveness of Melanie, and I really liked that she stuck with like the theme of telling adult situations and stories through these childlike situations. And I really like that she sampled um, Leslie Gore's Pity Party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking the same thing. Like, Crybaby was so revolutionary. Like you said, nobody else was doing what she did at the time. And I think I could make the argument that Portals could be her strongest just because it is like we said, kind of an evolution of her sound. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, Cryberry was kind of setting the standard. K through 12 was the continuation. And now Portals is kind of like a reestablishment of who Melanie Martinez is, but in a different light. So I think we'd have to sit with Portals a little bit longer because obviously it's still a recent release. But, you know, from what I've seen people commenting on and what I've seen other outlets review the album as, like, this could be like, you know, her biggest album of her career thus far like it's and it's wild because she she's not like a chart topping artist she's not like a top 40 artist like she has platinum singles though like she has gold records like she's Mm -hmm. had so much success just doing what she does that you know this would literally take her to the stars i feel yeah i definitely i agree with that i feel like like you mentioned crybaby definitely set like a foundation Mm -hmm. and with that and like the money she made off that she was able to build k through 12 and build the production behind it and the movie for it and then just seeing that kind of take off and like i mentioned before gaining a lot of popularity on tiktok and social media i think that really helped the trajectory of portals to become like one of the top performing albums of her career so far i don't know i think too like she has a lot of unreleased songs that a lot of people are excited for like I know. So she released Fire Drill, which Mm -hmm. was really big. I was excited to get that one. I like that one too, yeah. She has a lot of just very unique. She's just unique. Like, there's no other way to phrase it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I said, she's Melanie Martinez, the one and only. I think she literally changed her Instagram bio to that or something. Like, there's 
It's, yeah, it's true. Like <laughs> and now there's like a milk and a mermaid, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Milk of the siren. But yeah, I don't know. Okay, if we're talking about like physical form, I think I I think Portals is so cool because I really like this character like now. Mm-hmm. But I think music wise, I really like Crybaby. And then aesthetically, I think K through 12, because I really like the movie K through 12 was like just amazing. Love it. Well, Angie, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Melanie's album. I literally forgot how much I like her slash know about her. So this has been so therapeutic. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really great to just uh, sit and talk about one of my favorites. And that's the rotated review. Want to join me for the next review? Send in your suggestions to the Onrotation Podcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Make sure you hit that follow button while you're at it. To read this review fully, see my blog, or listen to past episodes, log on to onrotationpodcast.wordpress.com. Now it's time to take a look at what popped this week in news. The Weeknd is statistically the most popular artist on the planet. According to Guinness World Records, the Canadian artist was the first artist to reach over 100 million monthly listeners on Spotify, surpassing 111 million on March 20th. Miley Cyrus came in second with over 82 million listeners. A lawsuit from two former teachers claims that Kanye West's Donda Academy fosters a chaotic environment of bullying, health, and safety violations, Rolling Stone reports. The teachers allege they were unjustly fired in March for reporting code violations, experienced racial discrimination, and were severely underpaid. The school was unaccredited at the time of the alleged incidents. And the three men accused of killing XXX Tenacion have been sentenced to life in prison. Trayvon Newsom, Michael Boatwright, and Diedrich Williams were found guilty of first-degree murder and armed robbery in the rapper's 2018 death on Thursday, April 6. All three are expected to appeal their guilty verdicts in the future, WPLG reports. And that's going to do it for this episode, but feel free to tune in next time when we rotate through a whole new slew of topics with all new guests. In the meantime, keep it real, y'all.